folks for leading us in that time of worship and singing. We appreciate it so much. If you have your Bibles with you, please, I'd invite you to turn to John chapter 15 once again. As we've been making our way through this gospel according to John, we've come to that section often referred to as the, the upper room discourse or the, final, or the farewell discourse. Jesus and his disciples, who are remembered, have sequestered themselves in, in an upper room in the city of Jerusalem, away from the crowds. It's just Jesus and his 12 most intimate companions. They're there to celebrate the Passover meal together. It is in the intimacy and privacy of this upper room where Jesus continues to prepare his disciples for his imminent departure. In John chapter 13, you'll remember Jesus provided just an extravagant, unprecedented display of love for his disciples. And that was immediately followed up by three very troublesome announcements. So as we come to John chapter 14, we're not surprised to find Jesus acknowledging and then dealing with their troubled hearts. When we come to John chapter 15, Jesus is looking further down the road. After his departure, he begins by addressing their relationship with himself in verses 1 through 11. Abide in me so that you will become the fruit bearers that you are designed to be. Secondly, he turns to their relationship with each other. Verses 12 to 17, and these are the verses that we focused on last week. Followers of Jesus love each other. It's a command. It's not optional. A commandment to be obeyed. They were to love each other as Jesus loved them, sacrificially, for the betterment of the other person. They were to confide in each other, and they were to empower each other. In this next section that we want to look at this morning, Jesus is once again focusing on yet another relationship. It was first with himself, and then their relationship with each other, and now it's their relationship to the world. In a world where friends of Jesus are fated to be hated, Our text for this morning will prepare us for life in a world where friends of Jesus are fated to be hated. And so my prayer and purpose this morning is that you and I will be prepared to face all kinds of rejection, alienation, and yes, even the possibility of persecution from an increasingly hostile and unbelieving world. Jesus here at the end of John chapter 15, in his continuing efforts to prepare his disciples for his imminent departure, addresses the world's hatred toward them. Because he knew Friends of his are fated 
to be hated. He wants you and I to know it as well. Please stand with me if you're able for the reading from God's Word. I'll begin reading in verse 12 of John chapter 15, and I'll read through to the end of the chapter. So John chapter 15, beginning at verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you would go, go and bear fruit, that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, love one another. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you? A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without cause. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of Truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This passage is about as happy as the weather outside. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Let's pray together. Father, as we come now to the study of your word, May we share the same confidence that the Apostle Paul expressed to the believers in Philippi. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it in the t until the day of Christ Jesus. Our confidence is not in ourselves. It's not because of anything we have done or accomplished or plan to accomplish. No. We come humbly as a sinful, less-than-perfect assembly of worshipers who've received your forgiveness by trusting in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. 
We are asking that the Spirit of Truth, the Helper, sent by Jesus from you, would convict us of our sins so that we can repent, illumine our minds so that we can understand your word, and then empower us so that we can live a life that pleases you. Regardless of how the world may treat us, indeed, give us courage to live our lives not to please men, but you who examines our hearts. Teach us, we pray. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, as we give our attention to these verses in John chapter 15, be pleasing to you and transformative for us. By your power and for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends of Jesus are fated to be hated. I think the first thing that we need to do is expect it. Look at verse 18. If the world hates you. This opening phrase in the English translation is, it comes across as a, as a conditional clause. But actually, in the original Greek, Jesus' words are stating, or he's making a statement of reality for argument's sake. It's like, if you put that screwdriver in that electrical socket, you're going to have the shock of your life. Or, if you get caught speeding, Frank will write you a ticket. <laughs> it's a statement of reality for the sake of argument. So, as we read this, we could actually put in there, instead of if, if you like, you could kind of jot in in pencil, since. It's a statement of reality. Since the world hates you. Jesus was eliminating the surprise factor. He didn't want us to be caught off guard. Since the cosmos, the world, Greek word is cosmos, hates you. The Apostle John uses this word in at least three different ways in his gospel. The first way would be in reference to creation. In John chapter 1, verse 10, he was in the world... And the world was made through him. Created it. Secondly, he used it in reference to, to all humanity. What's the most famous verse in the Gospel of John? John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the cosmos, the world, all humanity, that he gave his one and only begotten Son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Believe in Christ. Have eternal life. Thirdly, cosmos in the Gospel of John is used in reference to the world system that stands in opposition and rebellion against everything that God stands for. Its overseer is Satan, the God of this age. Look again at verse 19. 
If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. That is the system that is opposed against everything that God stands for. This world, it represents those who will hate the friends of Jesus. It's the world of unbelievers. You know, we were never allowed to use that word when we were growing up. My dad would hear us using it, and we would always respond, ooh, that's a strong word, hate. But I'm sure my brother still hates peas. And that's a sense that is being used here. The perfect tense of the verb translated hate implies that the, the world's hatred is a fixed and continuing attitude toward the friends of Jesus. But let's admit it. As Canadians, we come to this passage of Scripture and it's so easy for us to dismiss it. It's not relevant. Clearly it's speaking of another group of people in a, another time. It's involving someone else. After all, we live in the true north, strong and free. I would caution us not to dismiss this passage too quickly. What has been and maybe what even is may not always be the case, even in Canada. You know, the scriptures aren't silent on this. We find similar warnings scattered throughout the scriptures. Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Paul is writing to a young understudy. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted. I don't think that requires much explanation. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through, as if something strange were happening to you. They're scattered all over Asia as a result of the persecution of Nero, an emperor who was actually a nutcase, burnt down half of Rome and blamed the Christians. 1 John chapter 3, verse 13. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. And that's just a sampling. You'll find that again and again throughout Scripture. How about some historic examples? Indeed, these 11 men that were sitting in the room with Jesus that evening, listening to him speak, according to Christian tradition, all were martyred, every last one, except one. 
The Apostle John, the one who wrote this gospel, actually lived to an old age and was exiled to the island of Patmos. All the rest, crucified upside down, heads cut off, like it just goes on and on. What about the Apostle Paul? In answer to those who were gaining influence, the church at Corinth, by by attacking his credibility, he wrote this of his personal experiences in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 and onward. I've worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number, faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I've traveled on many long journeys. I've faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I've faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I've faced danger in the cities and in deserts and on the seas. And I've faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. The Apostle Paul, without question, experienced the hatred of the world. After being an infamous persecutor of the New Testament church, till he met Christ on the road to Damascus, John Acts chapter 9. And speaking of the book of Acts, in its chronicle of the spread of Christianity and the planting of new localized assembly of believers throughout the known world, provides a record of the struggle of these friends of Jesus in those early days and years following Jesus' departure. Biblical history provides all kinds of examples of the world's hatred towards the friends of Jesus. How about in today's world? Open Doors is a mission established to serve persecuted Christians worldwide. Let me read from their website. Today, just like in the book of Acts, Christians are persecuted all over the world for following Jesus. It's really hard for us to relate to, isn't it? Christians remain one of the most persecuted religious groups in the world. While Christian persecution takes many forms, it is defined as any hostility hostility experienced as a result of identification with Christ. Christian torture remains an issue for believers throughout the world, including the risk of imprisonment, loss of home and assets, physical torture, beheadings, rape, and even death as a result of their faith. Trends show that countries in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East are intensifying persecution against Christians. And perhaps the most vulnerable are Christian women who often face double persecution for their faith and for their gender. Every day we receive new reports of Christians who face threats, unjust imprisonment, 
beatings, even loss of family because of their faith in Jesus. Every day. On an average month, they report that 255 Christians are killed. Month of March. 104 are abducted. 180 Christian women are raped, sexually harassed, or forced into marriage. 66 churches are attacked. 160 Christians are detained without trial and imprisonment every single month. In an article published in the popular magazine Christianity Today, it's titled Persecuted Christians Today, we read the following. Martyrdom is a regular, ongoing feature of church life in 25% of global Christianity that we call the underground church. That's a quote from David Barrett of World Evangelization Research Center. In one part of the globe, he goes on, over 10,000 Christians have been killed every year since the year 1950 due to clashes with anti-Christian mobs, infuriated relatives, state-organized death squads, and so on. End of quote. The article goes on to say such staggering statements remind us that Christian martyrdom is not confined to the early centuries of Christianity and the Middle Ages. In fact, Barrett's statistics show martyrdoms increasing from 35,000 in the year 1900 to an estimated 260,000 in the year in this year. Finally, again from Barrett and a guy by the name of Todd M. Johnson, who are two of the world's leading demographers, more Christians were martyred in the 20th century than all other previous centuries combined since the time of Christ. I know those statistics can be boring, but folks, don't be caught by surprise. This world is going to reject us, alienate us, and yes, perhaps even persecute us. Don't be lulled into sleep and caught by surprise. Jesus taught in his Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Expect it. Friends of Jesus are fated to be hated. Secondly, explain it. Jesus provided his remaining disciples with five reasons for the world's hatred. First of all, the world hated Jesus. Look at verse 19. If the world hates you, or since the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. The next number of verses go on to elaborate on how 
the followers of Jesus become collateral damage. They hated Jesus, and then we're kind of caught in this collateral damage. It should not surprise us. It happens in relationships all the time. Tim has a falling out or a parting of ways with, with Paul. And I like Paul. I still want to hang around him a bit, do things together. But because of my relationship with Paul, Tim wants nothing to do with me. Remember, the world hated Jesus first. Secondly, the world hates those who are not of the world. Look at verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Again, I, the, we need to understand, these disciples, they weren't smarter or, or better than the others. It wasn't that they kind of figured this thing out all on their own. It says clearly, and I should say, not just for these disciples, but it never is. It's not that we're smarter, somehow figured it out. But Jesus chose them. Jesus chooses us. And once chosen, they are no longer of this world. And the world hates those who are decidedly different. Genuine believers are different. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. Old things have passed away. New things have come. We are changed. Immediately, some things change immediately. And then, progressively. Remember that little chorus we used to sing? He's changing me. Little by little, every day. Little by little, in every way, Jesus is changing me. Since I've made a turnabout face, I've been growing in his grace. Jesus is changing me. He's changing me, my precious Jesus. I'm not the same person that I used to be. Sometimes it's slow going, but there's a knowing that perfect one day I will be. And the world is not cheering us on. In fact, just the opposite. In Romans chapter 1, verse 32, following a list of absolutely despicable activities and behaviors, Paul wrote these words. And although they know the ordinance of God, or the commands of God, or the expectations of God, although they knew those, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. That's what the world cheers on, those kinds of activities. This reminds me of that, what is it, the, the crab in the bucket theory? Have you heard that before? You put a bunch of crabs in, the, in a bucket, and um, they're quite happy. While a single crab could probably get away, out over the top. The other crabs will never allow that to happen. In fact, if they see one crawling up the side, they'll reach out and grab it and pull it back down 
into the bottom of the bucket. In fact, if he persists, the other crabs will kill him rather than let him escape. Apparently, it is true about crabs and the world too. The world hates friends of Jesus. They want everyone to, to say, stay the same, prepared to participate or at least tolerate or maybe even endorse their sinful behaviors by staying in the bottom of the bucket. Try and escape, and we'll kill you. Or at least reject and alienate you. The world hates those who are not of the world. Thirdly, the world hates those who identify with Jesus. Look at verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. They kept my word, they will keep yours also. Jesus used this exact same principle back in John chapter 13 after he had washed the disciples' feet, remember? On that occasion, the application of the principle was to encourage his disciples to do what he had done for one another, to be prepared to serve one another. Master is greater than the servant. The servant is not greater than the master. Therefore, I, the servant, did it. You needed to do it to one another. But here, the focus is different. Using the exact same principle, the application is different. He's telling them why they would experience persecution. A slave is not greater than his master. There's a bit of encouraging news here at the end of the verse. Did you notice that? Not all is lost. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Indeed, some in the world responded to Jesus. And in the same way, some would respond to the teachings of the disciples as well. But the more we identify with Christ, the more we abide in him, the more we invite the world's hatred. Identification with Jesus invites the world's hatred. Christian life has never been a promise for, for comfort and ease for wealth and health. We're not going to ride off into the sunset and live happily ever after. Rather, it's a call that leaves us strangers and aliens in the world, in a world that hates those who identify with Jesus. I suppose we can avoid some of that hatred, can't we? The world does not know the Father. Look at verse 21. But all these things they will not do for my but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake. It just means for because of me, because they do not know the one who sent me. In other words, they hate Jesus because they don't know the one who sent him. 
and we know who sent him. Listen to Jesus in John chapter 20, verse 21, just as an example. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. That was Jesus' consistent claim throughout his earthly ministry. The Father has sent me. To know here actually means to have an intimate relationship with someone, to have affinity with someone or something, to, to love something or someone. That's the knowing that's used here. The world, by nature, does not have such a relationship with God. In fact, we are born with sin natures that make us enemies of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 7, puts it this way. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. And so here is the reasoning behind this verse. The logic behind it. When people oppose the disciples or those who are friends of Jesus, it is because they oppose Jesus. If people oppose Jesus, it is because they do not know the Father. Look at verse 23. He who hates me hates my Father also. Therefore, the people who are opposed to Jesus or the friends of Jesus, it's ultimately because they do not know God. That lack of knowledge makes them a part of the official opposition the world system. The world does not know God. Finally, friends of Jesus are fated to be hated because the world has been exposed. First, by Jesus' words and deeds. And secondly, by their own scriptures. Look at verse 22 to 25. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without cause. Clearly, Jesus did not, well, he was not saying that it would have been better for the world if he had remained in heaven. That's not what he's saying. His point was that by coming into the world and by preaching and performing the miracles, those signs that pointed to him as being the, the Christ, the Son of God, he had confronted people with their rebellion and sin against God. You may want to jot down some verses. Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 to 24. And Luke chapter 11, verses 31 to 32. We'll give you some references to check out with that regard. H.A. Ironside, well-known author, Bible teacher, and pastor. Have you heard that name before? Great Canadian boy. Born in Toronto, Ontario. 
1876. He became the pastor of Moody Bible Church in Chicago from 1929 to 1948. In his commentary on the Gospel of John, he tells the following story. Once an African chief, and in this case a woman, happened to visit a mission station. Hanging outside the missionary's cabin on a tree was a little mirror. The chief happened to look in the mirror and saw her reflection with its hideous paint and evil features. She gazed at her own terrifying countenance and jumped back in horror, exclaiming, Who is that horrible-looking person inside that tree? Oh, the missionary said, It's not in the tree. The glass is reflecting your own face. The African would not believe it until she held the mirror in her hand. She said, I must have this glass. How much will you sell it for? Oh, the missionary said, I don't want to sell it. But she begged until, she, until he finally gave in and sold her the mirror. She took the mirror, exclaiming, I will never have it make faces at me like that again. And she threw it down and broke it into pieces. Ironside writes, that is exactly what the Jews did to Jesus. And it continues to this very day. We hate to see who we really are as God sees us. And so the world has been exposed. Friends of Jesus are fated to be hated because the world hated Jesus first. The world hates those who are not of the world. The world hates those who identify with Jesus. The world does not know God. And the world has been exposed for what it really is. Now what? Defy it. Look at verses 26 and 27. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. When faced with this kind of opposition, we really have two options. One, we run. Distance ourselves from it. Hide. Secondly, to go silent. Gag order. Be intimidated. Engage in a cover-up. Or, we can accept Jesus' three encouragements found here in verses 26 and 27. First of all, is Jesus' provision. My re translation refers to him as a helper. Others may have comforter, advocate, intercessor. The Greek word is parakletos and means the one who comes alongside to help. Flip back to John chapter 14. Remember what we studied earlier a few weeks ago. Verse 16 and 17. Jesus says, I'll ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him 
or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Verse 23, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Verses 25 and 26. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. The early Tuesday morning gang has committed 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 to memory. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God so that we may know the things freely given to us of God. That's the Spirit of God that has been sent to us. We can be encouraged to live in defiance to the world's hatred because of Jesus' provision. Secondly, because of the Spirit's testimony. The Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he testifies of me. Three ways the Spirit would testify about Jesus. Can you think of them? Come to mind three ways. Remember Jesus promised his disciples that the Spirit would bring to remembrance all the things that he taught them. In John chapter 14, verse 26, we just read it. He was also an indispensable agent in the writing of Scripture. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. And finally... He illumines scripture as believers read it. In other words, as we expose ourselves to the text of this written revelation, the Spirit helps us to understand it, discern the implications of it, and then even helps us to assimilate it into our lives so that it changes the way we think and feel and eventually our behaviors. John chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. That's in the weeks coming up. We'll come to those verses soon enough. But we can be encouraged to live in defiance of the world's hatred because of the Spirit's testimony. And then finally, our own story, our own testimony. We can't stop the world from hating us. So we can decide to light our lamp and put it under a basket. But under that basket, our faith will grow stale, stagnant. Our spiritual development will be impaired. And our relationship with Jesus will grow cold. Or we could set it on a hill, like Jesus did. Remember John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5? In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And then John chapter 8, verse 12, that famous declaration, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness, because you will have the light that leads to life. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. 
I referred to verse 17 earlier. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. But let's continue reading to the end of verse 20. And I'm going to read it in the New Living Translation. Please follow along in your copy of the scriptures. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. With Jesus' provision, the Spirit's testimony, and our example and lips, we can defy the world's hatred with gentleness and respect. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. A itinerant preacher, Richard Owen Roberts, once preached on that verse in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. That was his text for the message. Uh, as Robert spoke in that verse on the reality that all who seek to follow Jesus will suffer, afterward a man came to him protesting the point. You were wrong in that point, he said. It is not true that everyone who lives a godly life will suffer persecution. I am the city attorney, and no one persecutes a city attorney. Allow me to offer a, syllog a syllogism, Roberts replied, or a kind of a logical argument. Major premise, all who want to live a godly life in Christ shall suffer persecution. Minor premise, the city attorney suffers no persecution. Conclusion, the city lawyer does not want to live a godly life in Christ. It is a painful truth and a crucial one. If Satan opposes Jesus always and everywhere, will he not oppose those who live a life that Jesus wants us to live always and everywhere? A Christian who follows Christ must expect it, be able to explain it, and then be prepared to defy it. Let's pray. Father, you demonstrate your own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What a gift. Apart from your initiative, we are hopelessly lost, destined to live self-centered, selfish lives, and then into a Christless eternity. I pray that each and every one of us here this morning will have responded positively to your demonstration of love for us by trusting Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. And then having made that decision, 
Would you enable us to be courageous and consistent? Keep us from the fear of man or even wanting to be friends with this world. Help us always to be bold representatives of Jesus in our homes, our neighborhoods, our schools, our places of work, in our community. Celebrating, demonstrating, and proclaiming the gospel to anyone and everyone who will take the time to listen. And may we always do it with humility, gentleness, and respect in complete dependence on the enablement of the spirit of truth that dwells within each one of us. May we testify also. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.